My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as International Ministries Director for Langham. Breaking news on that coordinated terror attack in Kenya, a country popular with American tourists. Yeah, the hostage crisis in the upscale Westgate Mall is ongoing at this hour. And here are the latest numbers. According to the Kenyan government, there are almost 60 dead, more than 175 injured, including four Americans. As of right now, there are still 10. Today, we take you back to Nairobi, Kenya, with part two of Chris's conversation with Gladys Mowiti. Gladys is a global authority on trauma counseling, work that has put her on the front lines of tragedies like the Rwandan genocide and Nairobi's Westgate mall attacks. If you haven't listened to part one yet, where Gladys shared some of the resiliency and struggles of God's people in Africa, I encourage you to start there. Now, let's pick up at the conclusion of their conversation. Gladys, you have a, a PhD uh, in counselling. Now, you are a Langham scholar, and most of the PhDs that Langham scholars do are either in Bible or theology or mission. So, in a sense, you're, you're quite unusual, I would say exceptional in that area. And I just wonder how you would answer the question, in what ways do you see counselling work as being on mission? Um, I'm smiling because it's John Stott who got me to do that, uh, to do what Langham hasn't been doing or maybe hasn't done since me. I wanted to come to um, Oxford Centre for Mission Studies to do my PhD. Then I realised that all they would need for me is to write a dissertation, no coursework. And so somehow I shared with Uncle John about it. I don't remember the, whether it was in Kenya or in UK, and I told him about my frustration. And he's the one who told me, apply to Fuller. Because I told him I want to go somewhere where I can do psychology and I also be able to do theology for integration. He said, apply to Fuller and I promise you at least a scholarship for the first few semesters, semesters while you settle down. So anyway, so I went on to ahead, ahead to Fuller and got my PhD. And so what does this have to do with missions? Um, I've always been a missionary. I may not be, my skin color does not allow missionary word in Africa, but I became a missionary as soon as I got saved. For me, 
um, my theme in life is to know Christ and make him known. And so I use my therapy room as a missionary ground. And so many people come to know the Lord. I also preach a lot. Actually, I'm on the pulpit like a real, my husband and I, people think we are ministers, we are reverends, we are not. <laughs> so basically, where does, uh, but does this fit into mission? Uh, my call to the church, um, I, I weep as I sing the song, um, Darlene Sheik of Hillsong, Oh Lord, I ask for the nations. Um, I sang that song during my graduation at Fula until I wept. Because I said, Lord, give me the nations. Help me that I'll be able to speak the message of holism. Where we are ministering to all the needs. Jesus Christ went around preaching, teaching, and healing. And he healed even mental illness, not just mental health struggles. So Christ was so holistic in his ministry. And so when we come and divide up the church, um, then we divide up the church like, okay, these are, this, we are all about spiritual. Okay, we'll feed the poor, fine. But mental health, we don't want to know. Emotional struggles, we don't want to know. Uh, and so what I preach against and speak against in the church is actually um, that is splitting up of the, the, a whole human being. All the faculties should be together. Now, the church has done very poorly uh, in terms of mental health. And so I'm a missioner in that area. Because you find um, what has happened in the church is that we have carried on with myths about mental health. Um, for example, the myth of reductionism, where mental health is all about the doctor. Go to see a psychiatrist if you're struggling. Or it's all about moral failure or spiritual failure. If really you were close to God, you would get depressed. And then um, that if you are Christian, you cannot have mental issues, mental health issues. Whereas I know there are pastors married to psychotic women. One of them the other day lost his wife. Um, and she has had mental health struggles right through. Now, so here's a pastor praying for people to get healed and his own wife is psychotic. Mm. Does it mean this pastor doesn't have enough faith? Or does it, it mean that we live in a broken world where Jesus Christ said, in this world, you have much trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So that separation, depression is weakness, um, and some people say, if you talk about your mental health struggles, they become worse. Instead, have a positive spirit. Just say, I am not sick, even when you are sick. But surely, I tell people, if you have malaria and the temperature is shooting through the roof, you go to see the doctor, won't you? Yeah. Then why don't you see a psychologist mm -hmm. when you are struggling? And so all we do is pray, 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 and live in denial to the extent that mental health issues, and I'm not talking about mental illness, chronic mental illness, no. I am talking about depression. So I'm talking about, we do not want to accept the reality that 
we can suffer from depression. And when we do not accept that reality, it means that when challenges in life come, take for example, there's something we call uh, an assessment at Oasis Africa, we call the Life Change Index Assessment. And we give it to people who come to us because the more challenges in your life you've had over the past one year, the more likely it is that your resilience is undermined. So if you had your mother die, and then COVID-19 cost, cost you your job, and then you had a mortgage that is unpaid. Now you are also parenting at home because there is no school for the children. You are getting them to go to school. You are balancing that with a full-time job where you have to work online and you are not used to Zooms of this world. The more stuff that is happening to you, the more stressed you become. So instead of going to discuss how do I build resilience and self-care during this period of COVID-19, because you are a Christian, you pray, 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 but the stress doesn't go away. So what happens? You begin losing sleep. Your appetite is affected. And so you follow that person, the trajectory is that in a few months time, they'll be recording symptoms of depression. Because the more they pray, the less things happen to change the situation. Now, if this person, all they do is have their pastor pray for them because they sent their offertory on M-Pesa. That's a mobile line of sending money. And the pastor sends a prayer. Who is the problem? It's this woman. So basically, that's the issue. So Christians, we need to stop living in denial. We are not in heaven yet. That's wonderful advice and very clear. I'm just wondering if we could move to the fact that, yes, with Oasis Africa, as well as that, could I call it routine counseling that you do of people suffering you know, from uh, mental illness and depression, you've also led teams engaged in counseling in some situations of pretty horrific trauma where people have experienced either genocide or extreme violence, either to themselves or that they've witnessed. And I'm wondering, are there any common principles that you operate when you're helping people in such extreme circumstances from when you're helping people with what we might call the more routine issues of bereavement and loss of job or road accidents and things of that sort? How do you apply your principles across the spectrum of illness and trauma? That's a good question, Chris. Um, and I think it's something I take for granted that as Authorities Africa, we seem just to, to shift from the, um, from the endangered room, the closet, into the community very easily without even giving it a second thought. And I think it's because you've done it for so many years because the whole thing started with Rwanda genocide. Because when the, um, the staff of United Nations were evacuated into Nairobi, they came to us. I was called by United Nations to actually offer them what they called then debriefing before they were deployed anywhere. About 300 of them filled up every available hotel space in Nairobi, all of them expatriates, because they didn't bring out Rwandans. And so together with two clinical social workers from Canada who flew in like two weeks after I started, 
and then the head of the counseling unit from New York, the four of us work with 300 people who are signing on the dotted line that they have gone through our program. And it is then my burden for Rwanda grew. And I kept asking, what can we do? Then I remembered um, that we've been training lay counselors because I've always believed I am only, those days I was only one. And the way to multiply myself was through the church, train lay counselors in the church to begin with the ministry of encouragement because I believe every Christian is called to be an encourager like Barnabas. So you can just encourage by simply listening. Listening people, many people do not know how to listen. Instead, they start telling their story. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I went into Rwanda and we used the same model through the church. And in three years, we had over a thousand, 1,000 trauma counselors in Rwanda. So it is the same model we used with Nairobi bombing. The same model we used with Westgate. Now with Westgate, there were more psychologists then. So instead of going to the lay, I started with psychologists. And I realized along the way that um, trauma is one of the things you can cut across populations with. I am a member of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. And I've served on their international board for five year, two five-year electoral terms. And uh, Trauma therapy is cross-cutting because everyone suffers or goes through the same experiences. It's only the coping and the recovery that's a bit different. So it is a model we've used, the psychological first aid is what we use, and it's an international model recommended by World Health Organization, and you can fit it into any culture. So basically that has been the practice that when there is a huge crisis, we just move out of the, out of the closet into the community. Mm-hmm. We train counselors, get a wonderful program going on that is regulated and guided. Um, and then those that are really affected end up in our therapy rooms. And so that has been the way we've managed this crisis. I'd be interested to hear a little more because you're talking about an international standard uh, of counseling and trauma, uh, addressing trauma and so on. And yet I imagine that there are probably considerable differences between the response that you might get to psychology and uh, clinical psychology in Africa from the way it might operate in the West in terms of assumptions and the cultural understandings that people bring to such an experience uh, who come to you. Have you any reflections on that? Yes, definitely. Because one of the things we keep reminding ourselves is that people enter the room, even the clinic, they enter the room with their culture. And the fact that I'm African does not mean I'm an African, Meru, a Kenyan, African, Meru. I'm not Kikuyu, I'm not Luo. If I'm a Luo, a Maasai, coming to my clinic, they walk in with their culture. So we've trained ourselves to listen to the culture of these people, to, have, to, tell their, to, li- to listen to their story, to use their metaphors, use their understanding. So I have spoken about cultural sensitivity across the world. I think three, four years ago, I spoke at the Christian Association for Psychological Studies International Conference in Chicago. I was the plenary speaker talking about cultural sensitivity. 
I spoke to the Global Missions Conference in Liebenzell, Germany, three years ago, again, talking about cultural sensitivity. So what, what happens often is that we become so enclosed in our own understanding. And I tell psychologists that do not fit people into a model. So you chop off, it's like a tree with branches, chop off the branches to make it fit into your model. Uh-uh. What you do is you take your model, put it on the side, listen to them, and then fit your model around the people. So it has all got to do with understanding and the readiness to realize that every client spells the way of their own therapy by the very culture that they bring or, you know, into the room or into the program at Westgate more. So would you say that there are things that Christian psychologists in the West, let's say in North America or in Europe, could learn from someone like yourself as a clinical Christian psychologist in Africa? Absolutely. Because they wonder what I'm doing in the community. They ask me, are you a community psychologist? No, I am a clinical psychologist in the community. Mm -hmm. So a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. Let's move, if I may, uh, Gladys, to one other aspect of your involvement. We've talked about involvement with governments, with the United Nations, with the community. Yes. But you've also been involved with the Lausanne movement. And just in case that's not a familiar term to uh, any of our listeners, uh, the Lausanne movement began in 1974 when Billy Graham and John Stott called a, a congress, the first Lausanne congress in Lausanne in Switzerland, for world evangelization. It then became a global movement, really, for world mission, uh, with conferences in 1989 and the most recent one in Cape Town in 2010. Uh, and Lausanne, of course, is fundamentally involved with the concepts of, of mission, uh, biblical mission, mission in the world, and so on. You've been involved, I think, particularly to bring mental health and trauma issues onto that table, as it were, to be accepted as part of Christian mission. Would you like to tell us about that and about the network within the Lausanne movement that you yourself have been involved with in leading? Yeah, um, Lausanne movement, uh, my friend and I, Brad Smith, is a dean uh, of students in, um, in a university in Mississippi. We got together and started talking about the involvement of Christian mission in mental health. So when we started the conversation Lausanne movement, it was not easy to get them to include uh, mental health. But in 2010 in uh, Cape Town, we put together a paper that the leadership wonderfully accepted and they told us then you can go on and start um, a mental health and trauma network. So um, Brad and I have been leading this network and uh, it has given us an opportunity to showcase the need for the church to include mental health and trauma in her mission. So that has been it. We've uh, prepared papers, presented and written for Lausanne. Um, and there's more and more acceptance now that mental health needs to be a, a part of our missions. Thank you. Yes. And if people want to follow that up, uh, they can go to the Lausanne website. That's lausanne.org, and then look at the issue groups, the special interest groups that are there throughout. Uh, and the one you're involved with, as you said, is the Lausanne Network for Mental Health and Trauma. Yes. Tell us just a little bit more about 
the kind of everyday work that you do with Oasis Africa. And by the way, again, to help people find that, the website is oasisafrica, all one word, dot co, C-O, dot K-E for Kenya, oasisafrica.co.ke. But Gladys, tell us a little bit about just what you and Gershon do uh, day by day and your teams. Thank you. Um, there is also another website, uh, Chris. This is our wellness website because we do a lot of work with organizations on employee wellness. So it is Oasis Africa Wellness. Okay. So that's another website. Um, I, I, something exciting that I need to share with you is also, like I said earlier, we speak a lot in conferences. One of the most exciting um, conferences I spoke at a few days ago is the Global Missions, um, Global Missions Conference. I speak at this every year because there are meetings um, here in Kenya um, that are hosted by the Abundant Life International. And so every year I've spoken, they have asked me to speak on something else, not mental health. They have asked on parenting, they have asked. So I've been asking, where is mental health? This is Global Missions Conference. So this year, they asked me to speak about mental health and emotional wellness. I was so excited. So we had 78 people attending, most of them from around the world, Jamaica, Haiti, UK, Canada, USA, Kenya. And I'm told it was one of the best webinars as far as the participants have rated the webinars for the Global Missions Conference this year. So we do a lot of conference speaking. Day by day, uh, we'll go to the office where I'm seeing clients or leading my team. I'm a team leader. I believe in mentoring. So we have about 16, 17, 18 psychologists, all of them with masters or doctorate working for me at Oasis Africa. So they see clients, we do a lot of training, lots of webinars, lots of processing of grief and what have you. So I call it, I mean, I lead the team, I supervise them, I train them, and then I see clients here and there. Gershon does lots of meetings on leadership, a lot of them, um, many of, I mean, most of them volunteering his time. And then both of us preach very regularly. The other day, uh, September, we were the preachers at, uh, at uh, All Saints Cathedral for two Sundays running, each of us preaching two services, one of them online that was watched uh, by like 2 million people on, on television. Wow. So we do a lot of Christian work in the community, in the office, a lot of preaching. We met on the pulpit, Gershon and I, um, got married and continued on the pulpit. So you, that's what we, do. we write also, we are writers, we have published some books. You met on the pulpit, you said about you and Gershon. How did, how did that happen? Um, it happened because, like I told you, I've always <laughs> been a Christian wherever I go. So I was teaching in Marina Girls High School, chemistry again, and I used to organize um, annual uh, student camps through the Kenya Students Christian Fellowship. So we organized this one with my team that was a team preaching all over the district. And then the speaker that we invited, uh, the key speaker, was uh, Gershon, who then used to work for the Kenya Prison Service, heading the um, Department of Development. 
So he drove from Nairobi and came to preach for us in the youth camp. And uh, I knew about him, but uh, our eyes were opened. <laughs> Both of us were preaching in that conference, and then we've been preaching ever since. And then the rest, is, and the rest is history, as they the say. Rest that's, is that's, history. That's,